Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and welcome to an episode that is rooted in and steeped in history. I had the opportunity to visit Richmond, Virginia in January, the place that was the literal capital of the Confederacy during the Civil War. And I also had the opportunity to visit the library where they have all these historical documents, and they showed us among other things, the original handwritten register from 1830 titled A List of the Sale of Negroes with the names and amount of money that people were sold for. And then I also had the good fortune to go across the street and see the shifting tides of history when I went from reading about the original materials from the Confederacy to the state capitol building to meet with one of the legislators who was the architect of the 2021 democracy expansion bill that was passed in Virginia. The New York Times said of that bill, alone among the states of the former Confederacy, Virginia has become a voting rights bastion, increasingly encouraging its citizens, especially people of color, to exercise their democratic rights. And then I actually used that phrase, the title of the chapter of my book on Virginia, alone among the states of the Confederacy. And so on March 7th, That legislator became the first black woman to ever represent the state of Virginia in the United States Congress, the state where Virginia legislators oversaw the war to protect the practice of buying and selling black human beings. And I am delighted that that legislators are esteemed guests today. Very much looking forward to this conversation. And for the conversation, I'm joined as always by co-host Charlene Chang, who I suspect is still riding high on the Asian sweep at the Oscars. Hi, Charlene. How are you? And are you still celebrating everything Asian everywhere all at once? Hey, Steve. I definitely am still celebrating. And yeah, just going to ride that for as long as I can, because as I've been telling some of my friends, I don't know when it's going to happen again, but we're going to really just, you know, lean into and celebrate and read. I'm taking in all the photos of Michelle Yo and the entire cast of that amazing movie, which I loved when it came out. I'm just going to do a quick plug, which is I did write an essay about all my feels about it, which is going to be on our Democracy in Color blog. I mean, it's up right now. so people Yeah, and I should have plugged that as well. It's very well written and very powerful. <laughs> uh, Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited about today's show. I'm just so honored to be able to introduce our guest today. Our guest today is newly sworn in Congresswoman Jennifer McClellan. Former state legislator Jennifer McClellan spent more than 10 years in Virginia's House of Delegates and has a whopping 18 Virginia General Assembly sessions under her belt. In 2016, she succeeded the late Representative Don McKeachin in the state Senate when he was elected to Congress. She is the vice chair of the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus, and in 2021, McClellan ran for governor in a really crowded Democratic primary race. Then last month, on February 21st, she was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Her most recent victory in the special election to replace McEachin, who did pass away last year, makes her the first Black congresswoman for Virginia, as you mentioned. Her victory also marks a record there are now a total of 28 Black women in Congress. Welcome, Congresswoman. Thank you, Charlene. Thank you, Steve. I'm, I'm really excited to be with you. I really appreciate you making the time, and it's, it's exciting to see good pe- people getting into 
important positions. And so we're really excited, you know, what's going to be possible. Um, and I'm really, you know, glad to be able to connect you and introduce our, our audience who may not know much about your history to you and to what your, your work has been. And so um, I actually thought maybe we could start with just your sharing a little bit about how you got involved in politics in the first place. Um, and then what was your motivating impetus and guiding line to, to start getting involved in politics? So I think I'm a good example of a, a nerd made good. Hmm. <laughs> I was a, and still am a, a huge history nerd. And that really stemmed from my parents. Um, they were older than my friend's parents. They both grew up during the depression and listening to them just tell their stories of what it was like growing up during the depression under Jim Crow, not only sparked a love of history, but helped me understand that at its best, government is a force for helping people and solving problems. And at its worst, government is this force that oppresses some for the benefit of others. And the more I read, particularly about the the 1960s, the more I felt that the work of Dr. King and, and Bobby Kennedy and Shirley Chisholm was unfinished. So I decided at 11, I want to be a part of making government that, that force for good. Now, I, didn't, I didn't know what that meant at 11. <laughs> um, but I was the kid that watched, you know, presidential debates on TV and watched the news and discussed it with my parents. And then when I went to college, I joined the Young Democrats and really thought my impact would be getting people elected and then my dream job was to be a lawyer to the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I went to law school thinking, like, that's what I'm going to do. And then Republicans took over and I didn't want to work for them. So I sort of did politics as a hobby while I practiced law until in 2005, my delegate, Viola Baskerville, ran for lieutenant governor. And she and a lot of my friends said, you know, you really should think about running. And the more I thought about it, I said, yeah, I want to be the one making that change, not just electing other people and, and, and expecting them to do it. So ran for the house in 2005 and the rest is history. Wow. Now you, you've tweeted a bit and talked about your mom being involved. You want to share a little bit about that? Yeah. So both of my parents were involved in the civil rights movement, but in, but in different ways. You know, my mom never really voted until after the the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But she, when she, you know, she and my dad got married in 1959, and he was very active in the NAACP, and his father was a civil rights lawyer. And so she sort of was in this more supportive role, really working in, in the civil rights movement on a wide variety of issues, but they didn't really get involved in, in politics until, you know, other than voting, once, once she could vote, she did. But they really didn't start to get involved until I did, <laughs> when, when you know, I didn't have a car and they were sort of driving me around to all of these meetings. And the next thing I knew, they were both, you know, joining their local democratic committee and, and, and getting involved in, in the electoral process. So that, that was kind of interesting to see. And your mom is 90 now, is that right? She is 90. Yes. You, you tweeted out this picture of her filling out her ballot for her daughter to become a congresswoman. That's really. Yeah. 
she was pretty Very sad. <laughs> yeah, she was a little salty. She couldn't be on the house floor, to, you know, <laughs> when I got sworn in. But other than that, she was she was ecstatic. Well, that's that's how parents are. Remember, I was on the <laughs> I, was, I was on the school board in San Francisco. My mom had called me about something back in the 90s. And I'm all like, Mom, I, I have to go uh, meet with the mayor. She's like, I'm your mother. I don't know. So I go, okay. Yeah. Congressman, your, your story is so moving. I love hearing. Uh, we do have you know guests on who are elected. And I, I just love hearing everybody's story about how you know, they got started and yours is uh, no less you know powerful and moving. And, and just your mother's story too, is just a reminder of how recent all of this was and how this notion of when you say she she didn't vote until she could. And 1965, as we often re- remind our listeners, was not that long ago. Yeah. And, uh, and also just how beautiful the story of your family, of how they got involved after you got involved and how proud they must have been and continue to be. I know you accomplished a lot during your time in Virginia state legislature, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. You were one of the key architects of the state's Voting Rights Act, as we mentioned, Mm -hmm. and we'll talk more about that in a bit because that was so monumental. You helped pass legislation protecting domestic workers, and that's something I think is really intriguing and really important, as well as you passed legislation protecting pregnant workers. And you've pushed for climate legislation as well. So just pushing and calling for justice on so many fronts and and protections for those most vulnerable in our community, in our society. What are you most proud of from your time in the state legislature? So I think that's a hard one. <laughs> All the ones you just mentioned. I know. It's a tough one. I will, it, it is a tough one. I think I'll start with one you didn't mention, the Reproductive mm-hmm. Health Protection Act. And and I got and that I think is a lesson in persistence and the importance of diverse perspectives. So, in 2010, I became the first member of the House of Delegates to be pregnant while in office, wow. and I was wow. pregnant during a session when we were debating. You probably remember the infamous transvaginal ultrasound bill. And, and I remember, and, and it wasn't widely known, I was pregnant at the time, but I stood up on the House floor and I spoke against it. And we were able to kill it that year, but it passed uh, in a different version after we got made fun of. They took the transvaginal part out. <laughs> it passed. And then in 2020, I carried the bill that repealed it and three other, you know, the biggest medically unnecessary barriers to abortion that were all legal under Roe. Mm. And it took about a decade, but I had carried legislation before I had fought back against restrictions before, but I think that one I was particularly proud of because it took so long and because it was the first time that anyone was really telling stories about pregnancies that go wrong and how, and like, what these laws actually mean to pregnant people trying to just get healthcare. So I think I'm very very proud of that one. We'll talk about the Voting Rights Act in a a minute, but the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which which made us the first state in the South to have 100% clean energy standard, that one, when it passed, I wanted to jump out of my seat and yell like the eagle has landed because it was that transformative for clean energy policy Mm -hmm. in Virginia. And 
it was hard to get, you know, it, it died, it almost died several times. <laughs> so I think those two, and then of course the Voting Rights Act, I think is the most personally satisfying. Well, yeah, I did want to, I want to dig into that, but also just to lift up this point that you were just saying about it taking 10 years. And I just can, that's even, um, you know, all the different case studies that I focus on in the book, right, including Virginia, all places where you had at least a decade or more of sustained effort in terms of yes. organizing and keeping at it, et cetera. And so I appreciate you sharing that example around the, around that bill. I do feel that the, you know, the voting rights bill was so fundamental and it's, um, you know, I keep trying to explain to people, like, we should learn from how focused the right wing and the white nationalists are on stopping us from voting in terms of yeah. understanding its centrality to this country. Yes. So I wonder if you could give us a little bit of background on how that came, what what was the journey to get that bill introduced and to get the to put together majority support um, to be able to get that bill passed and how how difficult a fight was it? I recently did a a law journal article on the history of voting rights in Virginia and and the story from the beginning of our republic was in the beginning of Virginia was Virginia was dragged kicking and screaming by the federal government to expand voting rights. And when the federal government retreated, then, you know, Virginia restricted voting rights. And it's this cycle that, you know, I wrote 50 pages about <laughs> until Shelby and, and slowly but surely as sort of the Supreme Court gutted the federal voting rights act, Virginia was very slowly chipping around the edges of making it easier to vote. And then in 2020, when we had a Democratic trifecta, uh, we passed five or six or seven bills, everything from making Election Day a holiday to 45 days of no, no excuse absentee voting, where we took Virginia from the second hardest state to vote to the 12th easiest. Hmm. One of the bills we introduced that year was a different version of of the Voting Rights Act that 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 was like a true preclearance. You know, here in Virginia, localities only have the power given by by the state, and so it would say if you're gonna make any changes to local voting laws, you got to have them pre-cleared by the state. And that failed. But Delegate Marcia Price, Tram Win with New Virginia Majority, um, who you talk about in in your book, and I started really talking about rather than doing this sort of Voting Rights Act light, why don't we bring the full breadth and, and of the Voting Rights Act into Virginia law, since who knows when Congress is going to reauthorize it. Mm -hmm. And so um, working with a number of, of lawyers and organizations, we did just that and, and just put our nose to the grindstone and got it through um, in 2021. So now we're, you've moved up the road uh, to D.C., <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. it's actually a longer road than I first appreciated. <laughs> Tram's like, oh, yeah, come down to Richmond. And I was like, it's a longer drive than I thought it was going to be, actually. But we were so I did really to be there. Yeah. Oh, yes, actually, that's the whole other. And then the little uh, the the uh, Google Maps kept changing the time. I was like, well, no, now it'll be two hours. Um, but so you're in Congress now. And so we're there at a time, well, both when the Democrats just lost the House 
barely, and they really shouldn't have lost it. But I, you know, strongly believe actually there's a strong likelihood to take it back in 2024 when higher turnout in the presidential election. I want to first ask about just like, what do you see as your priorities in general? And then also in terms of how do you see the importance of voter turnout? Right. So when we met when I was there in, in January, you were talking about trying to use your district as a base to be able to expand voter participation. So can you talk a little bit about how you're thinking about that and why you see that as, as important? Yeah, so on my priorities, there'll be a lot of the same priorities I had at the state level, you know, because all of the work I accomplished, whether it was on voting rights, worker rights, civil rights, climate action, environmental justice, all of that is yet to be done in Congress. And so even, even in, the minor- in the minority, you know, you start that work and, and then once we're in the majority, we can complete it. So still focused on that. I've got new committee assignments. Uh, I'm on armed services and science, space and technology. So some brand new issues that I'll be digging into that, I'm, I'm, that are important to Virginia and uh, I'm pretty excited about. But I think those will, my, my core priorities will, will remain the same. With voter turnout, it kind of started with the special election. We broke the record for a turnout in a fire, a Democratic firehouse primary in Virginia. We got 28,000 people to come out and vote. And to put that in context, when Donald McEachin got nominated in a regular primary in 2016, 15,000 people came out and voted. You can explain real quick what a firehouse primary is. Yes. So a firehouse primary, it's, it's basically one day of voting, a party run primary with we had, I think, eight voting locations as opposed to a state-run primary where people vote at their regular polling place. And we also had record turnout in the special election in, in February. And a big part of that was we didn't take anything for granted. And the basic rule of politics that goes back to at least Tip O'Neill is people like to be asked mm-hmm. and people like to be thanked. So rule number one is show up in communities and ask people for their vote. So we ran a very robust ground game with, you know, both a strong field program, a strong paid and earned comms to go out and reach people where they are. You know, we had some relational organizing in there to to earn their vote and not just say, oh, this is a Democratic district that, you know, Joe Biden won with 64% of the vote, so we're fine. We ran as if this were a Republican district because we didn't know who was going to turn out. And we wanted to make sure that people turned out. So we knocked on doors that haven't been knocked on in a long time. That's sort of how you increase turnout. And in some communities, in, in, in particularly lower income and, and some minority communities, it takes a lot of work, more than just what you can do in the last two weekends of an election. It takes sort of year round meeting people in their communities, going to their events, you know, meeting them where they are, talking about the issues they care about, listening to them and asking for their vote. But it, and we have the benefit in Virginia, we have elections every single year. So I'm not on the ballot until 24, but the entire General Assembly and a lot of local officials are up this year. I need to make sure that my voters keep in the habit of voting. So I will be very active in making sure they come out in the 23 elections by working with the the campaigns to 
go talk to voters so that when it's time for me to ask them to come out in 2024 for me and Tim Kaine, they're already used to that. They're used to someone coming and talking to them year round and not just, you know, the last two or three weeks of a, of a campaign cycle. Yeah. And that's why I lift up for the listeners too, that that's a very unusual and encouraging mindset in terms of for incumbent elected officials. Most people, once they get in, they're not as focused anymore about trying to increase voter participation and that it has the effect of lowering turnout uh, on a statewide level um, to say nothing of not engaging people in democracy. So to be able to have that orientation is very uh, refreshing. I really appreciate that. Well, and I think it's because I remember I got my start as a party activist. So since I was 18 years old, every year I've been volunteering on campaigns and going and asking people to go out and vote. And it's fun <laughs> and it's important. I'm kind of chuckling to myself because some 18 year olds have different definitions of fun, but <laughs> I'm like so glad to know that there is like that possibility that there are other 18 year olds out there who are like, yeah, I think getting people to vote is my my idea of fun, a fun weekend. <laughs> Congresswoman, I, I did want to shift topics a bit now, you know, when you were talking about being pregnant, uh, you were saying you had been the only preg- person who was pregnant during session. Is that right? Yeah, well, I was the uh, first my, delegate ever to be pregnant while in office and while in office um and my ears were perking up because i know that you've talked publicly about the challenges you faced while giving birth and that you and your daughter nearly died and uh while Mm -hmm. you were giving birth and first of all i just wanted to say uh, as a mother myself these issues being very close to my heart i just really wanted to say first of all how incredibly sorry you had you to go through that and that kind of scary uh, traumatic suffering, and I just can't imagine. But I also wanted to bring up this topic. There are people who know by now, but also many people who don't know that there is this increasing research that shows that there's a crisis taking place in our country regarding Black maternal health and the disparity in terms of the rates of which Black mothers have come into all sorts of health crises and complications during pregnancy and birth. And this is a cross-class, by the way, compared to women of other races. You had mentioned earlier that you're a staunch advocate for reproductive health. What would you like to see get done during your time in Congress around Black maternal mortality and reproductive rights at large? Oh, my gosh, so much. (laughs) Um, I mean, where do you even start? I mean, you know, first, I think a recognition that we know why. We, we know why Black women die at higher rates. Um, mm. It is rooted in, in other health disparities. Most Black women, I haven't dug into the national data, but I, I, I know this is true for Virginia. The largest percentage of Black women who die after childbirth, it's within the first year, and it's of cardiovascular-related issues. And, and those cardiovascular-related issues are rooted in disparities in cardiovascular health. You know, many of them who are covered by Medicaid, in a lot of places, Medicaid doesn't cover the first full year after birth. And so when you need that coverage the most, yeah, when you need that coverage the most, you don't have it. So I think fixing those two things, making sure that everyone, every, no matter where, where they live, has access to quality, 
affordable preventative care. And because these health disparities don't start when you're pregnant. Um, Those are just a few of the things. And then taking reproductive health decisions out of the hands of politicians, which is why I'm so disturbed by the bans that we're seeing in in this post-row world who that don't understand, like who are the women that are getting abortions after 20 weeks? They're, they're the ones who they've miscarried and they need to remove the fetus or else they could go septic. It's these horrible stories of, well, how close to death do I need to be before you can intervene medically? Just get out of the exam room. And, and unfortunately, those bans and those restrictions hit lower income, rural, and women of color who already are having trouble accessing other aspects of healthcare. So I think we need to address all of that. Fortunately, before I got there, Congress passed the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act so that now more workers don't have to choose between a healthy pregnancy and keeping their job. So I think those are the a few of the things we need to do, but but there's we could put, we could probably spend a whole hour just on that topic. Totally. Like I said, it's a it's a topic that's really close to me, and I thank you for doing that the work that you've been doing. Yeah, thank you. and it's becoming this flashpoint, right? And, uh, and I think heading to twenty twenty four and whatnot. There's so much doubling down on the right around this, right? And intimidating places like Walgreens in terms of making reproductive health services available, and so it's just going to be an increasingly intense part of the fight heading uh-huh. forward. I wanted to ask a little bit about the well. I'm saying Virginia's the not only was the capital of Confederacy, but they've they continued to really celebrate and embrace that, right? With them, particularly with all the monuments, right? That you had uh-huh. so many different monuments. It was a Monument Row, then the Robert E. Lee statue. It was like, you know, totally like 60 feet. It's like four or five stories tall. And once I didn't yeah. realize until I was writing the book was that that statue went up, it was like 1890 or around there. Uh-huh. That was 30 years before the Lincoln Memorial, right? So you have mm-hmm. Robert E. Lee getting memorialized long before they would even allow there to be a statue for the person who you know signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So, and I know you were actually you know posting on Instagram during the whole time of the George Floyd protest, and then when the statue was coming down. So it's one in which you could talk about that a little bit as somebody who's from there, yeah, living with that, and then seeing that whole process unfold. What was that like for you? You know, it's it, I I live right around the corner from, from where the, the Lee statue was. I would drive past it every day wow. um, on my way to the Capitol. And I never realized how much mental energy I spent ignoring it until I heard Governor Northam say, we're taking that monument down. And I still get chills when I think about it. And so the, the Stonewall Jackson monument was the first one that, that came down, which is uh, up the street and i i will never forget the moment that statue came off the pedestal it was raining there's a church right on the corner first baptist church their bail their bells began to ring there was this clap of thunder it was this like poetic moment mm-hmm. that somebody later described it was as if the tears of all of our ancestors were tears of joy. But I also felt this weight lift off my shoulders that I never realized was there because I had spent so much time just ignoring them 
and I didn't have to do that anymore. Yeah. And yeah. and I think particularly with the Lee Monument, John Mitchell, who who was the editor of the Richmond Planet newspaper, was the black newspaper, when that monument went up, and if you read the white newspaper, the, the predecessor to the Richmond Times Dispatch, it talks about how jubilant the whole day was. Mm-hmm. But when you read John Mitchell, he tells the other side of the story, and he says, black men put this monument up, it will be a black man who takes it down. Mm-hmm. And the two people most responsible for taking that monument down were Rita Davis, who was counsel to the governor, a black woman, and Devon Henry, the owner of the contracting company that took it down. It was a black man. And, and as I looked at the two of them in that moment, I thought Mitchell was so prophetic. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think people real people realize. I really appreciate you sharing that, and it's on such a personal level. It's it's you know I think I used the phrase poisoning our public spaces. Right? It's like well, why mm-hmm. do these things exist that didn't have this try to have this impact in ways that perpetuate that? And so, um, I, well, uh, look at when they were put up. So every time in our history that that black people, particularly, but marginalized people in general. Have, have made social, political, and economic gains, there's been a backlash that included three things, voter suppression, propaganda and iconography, and racial terror. And that monument was put up at the same, around the same time that Virginia disenfranchised Black men mm-hmm. who had gained the right to vote in Reconstruction at the same time that racial terror lynchings were happening. Those monuments were put up to say to black people at that time, stay in your place. Well, they were put up for that purpose. That monument is no longer there. And the person who lived around the street, down the corner from that monument, their place is now in the United States Congress. So we will uh, appreciate that moment. (laughs) And I know that as a congressman, you're very busy. And so we're going to let you go. But really, I just want to thank you for making the uh, time to be with us and you know just convey our congratulations and excitement um, for your for your being there and to be able to look forward Thank to partnering you. with you going forward. Thank you, you too. All right, that is all the time we have for today. I did not realize that the congresswoman lived down the corner from that from that monument. Um, it's just so I mean it's so great politically to have her in Congress, but then just on this like personal and emotional level that. Um, very important uh, development in our in our society here. So I want to thank all of our listeners for listening today to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Congresswoman McClellan on Twitter at, at Jen with two N's, McClellan, V-A, J-E-N-N-M-C-L-E-L-L-A-N-V-A. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at, at Democracy in Color. And if you're listening to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.